You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. We're speaking with Paul Kennedy. He's an internet bookseller. Thank you for joining me, Paul. You're welcome. Paul, how long have you been in the bookselling business? Uh, the first official activity I went to as a bookseller was 1993. And were you, what kind of, how, how were you selling books then, and what kind of books were you selling? In what well, way? That time, I had been saving up books for several years, and there was a, uh, a book sale in Las Vegas that I wanted to go to. And so I took my accumulation of science fiction and mystery, and I went to Las Vegas, and I had an incredibly successful book sale that turned out to be, for the next 10 years, the most successful book sale I ever had. (laughs) So the initial results far surpassed later reality. Now, was this a collection that you'd just been accumulating as a book buyer and a reader? Um, partially it was the stuff that I had accumulated for myself. Partially it was books that I had decided I wanted to resell at some time in the future. Because I, I wanted to do that for a long time before I ever did. So you would buy uh, two copies of, say, what, what, this is what I did when uh, I first bought uh, Richard Morgan's Altered Carbon. I bought it and said, oh, my God. <laughs> and then I went out and bought like three more hardcovers and wrapped them in plastic and shoved them in the shelf somewhere. Um, uh, sometimes I would do that, but basically I started reading science fiction when I was nine years old and mysteries when I was about 12. Wow. (laughs) And so as I started collecting the books with the intention of reselling, I basically took books either that I liked a lot or that I didn't see very often because I was always in bookstores looking for stuff. I mean, when you visit 500 bookstores a year, you get to know what's available and what isn't. <laughs> that's and when you see something that isn't available, you buy it. Yeah, no, that's uh, Jeffrey E. Barlow. Uh, he's a, a writer who has ha- had a couple of uh, ace trade paperback originals. And whenever I see his stuff, I just buy it right off the bat because it's hard to find, even though it was published by a mass market publisher. Mm-hmm. There's an awful lot of mass market paperbacks that vanished into one printing, and they are really good and very hard to find. So after starting at the age of nine (laughs) Mm -hmm. and leading up to 1993, you'd been accumulating books. You sold them at a book uh, show in Las Vegas. What happened next? Um, I started doing one or two major shows a year, and that escalated and escalated. And I, the last major year that I had was 2000, and I probably did about 20 shows that year. Now, the, are these just book shows, or are these uh, what, like uh, science fiction conventions? and uh... Some conventions, some book fairs, and all around the country, as far as Denver, Seattle, um, Albuquerque, Phoenix is a favorite, um, up by into Oregon. Now, I have to ask you, because uh, it just occurred to me that 
when I think of the detritus of, you know, many years, my many years of collecting and it, hauling that stuff around, <laughs> how do you do that? With difficulty. I made bookshelves that completely disassemble. I can put up, I can take maximum in my vehicle uh, 36 boxes. Wow, that's pretty many okay. boxes. And normally what you get, you're paying for each table expensive. So you put as much up as you can. You don't go flat, you go up. So I had bookshelves for underneath the tables, bookshelves from the back of the tables. The actual problem is not getting the books on. The actual problem is making sure the table doesn't collapse into the weight of the book. <laughs> so, because I actually had that happen at one convention. So... Uh, that was not fun, because um, when you start dumping, you know, fifty-dollar books on the floor, they get damaged and they become ten-dollar books. Yeah, no, I, that's that sounds uh, so, kind of <laughs> scary. But uh, I had bookcases that would disassemble, and so I could put all my bookcases into the bottom of the the truck, and they were only about three inches thick, and then stack all the boxes of books on top of them. It takes. Four hours of hard labor to set up and three hours to pack up. I would imagine so. Now, when did you make the leap to becoming an Internet bookseller? Um, I was actually one of the very first people to get on to Interlock, which is the predecessor for Alibris. Okay. And I think I was one of the first 300 people that signed up. And then a couple of years later, I signed up with ABE Books, and then eventually with Amazon. So um, that was when I first started. It was incredibly lucrative mm-hmm. for now, a bookseller. Who what, was, what year was this? That would be 95, 96, thereabouts. Okay, that's, that's um, a while. There was, at that point, if you had 10,000 books on the Internet, you were selling like crazy. You could not believe how successful you were. And everyone was rushing like crazy to get there. And then at some point, 10,000 books was just average. (laughs) And your sales were half of what they were when you had 5,000 books on. And now I have 16,000 books on, and it's about... It would not make. It does not pay for a living. One thing I have to ask about uh, is Alibris. Could you tell me a little bit about them? Because uh, I've always found them to be. I mean, when I the way I look for books on the internet is to I use Bookfinder, mm-hmm. and because it's a real nice service, and you can always spot Alibris because they're always like uh, jacked up about twenty five percent more <laughs> than the rest of them, and they preserve the descriptions from the earlier. Uh, version. So if I, I might see your direct sales listing some book of, you know, this fine condition, you know, cover, great, uh, signed by author on first page. And then I'll see the same uh, description verbatim about, you know, five rows down with a price jacked up about 25%. <laughs> yeah. Um, a Libris is not as bad as they used to be in that respect. But in particular, on cheaper price books, they want a very specific amount that they're going to get out of that book. Mm. And so they add something to it. Now, it's not as bad as it used to be. Mm. Um, 
when they first started, they had a $5 minimum. Oh, wow. So, and most of the other people did not. Like, at one point on ABE Books, you could buy books for a penny. You were paying three fifty or $4 for shipping. But you, the book itself was, was listed as a penny. Um, they weren't, ABE was not making any money on that. So they changed the rules now on ABE. It's a dollar minimum. Mm. At the same time, because of direct competition from Amazon, Alibris lowered their prices. So Alibris now has, I think it's like a $2, and I could be totally wrong on that, 2 or $3 minimum. Mm-hmm. Um, but since I never list anything that cheap, I don't care anymore. <laughs> it is expensive to do books. I would imagine okay. so. It takes to process a book from the time you buy it to the time it actually sells and it's in the post office is going to take you 20 minutes average per book that you actually sell, and that does not consider the time on the books that keep it, that stay in your warehouse. Mm. So it is very time-consuming, and doing books for a dollar or two dollars or even five dollars becomes a labor of just boredom. <laughs> well, a, a gift to the readers, but maybe not to the bookseller. <laughs> yeah. Well, $5 paperbacks is where most people make their money nowadays. Oh, really? It's not the $50 hardcovers. Mm. It's the $5. That's your bread and butter transaction. Oh, well, I would, I mean, well. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that, that sounds, it does sound tedious. Now, it, tell me a little bit about the kind of books that you have in your collection and things that you're, you know, authors that you've discovered and, and things you're interested in. Well, I do... Primarily now, at this point, I restrict it highly to mystery, some suspense, science fiction, and fantasy. What about horror? Horror gets tucked in with the science fiction and fantasy, Okay, but it's a small selection. If I separated out all my horror, mm-hmm. I would not even fill one bookcase, and I have about 60 bookcases. Wow. Um. And where do you have these bookcases? Where's your physical well, warehouse? That you... I actually have a physical warehouse, mm-hmm. and it's 700 square feet, mm-hmm. and it's in Canoga Park, a couple miles away from where I live. So I have a, a warehouse sale there twice a year. More than that is just that pushes the boundaries of what they consider you know, retail and wholesale. Ah, ah, interesting. So the rest of the time, it's an Internet operation. Or I go out to shows, but I need that space for the amount of books. I, I have 16,000 catalogs, but if you include stuff that's not cataloged and duplication, it's closer to 25,000. Wow, that's a lot of books. It's a lot of books. <laughs> yeah. Now, do you have a lot of books at home? I, I have issues with books at home. I, well, I'm told that there's only so many books I can put in my house, and, and I'm not sure that's exactly true. Well... Actually, it does in some areas. Um, there are issues with that. I know from talking to other dealers that there have been dealers that were issued citations by the fire department. Really? Yes. I know one person <laughs> that with the fire department, somebody, um, evidently somebody reported him as being a fire hazard, and the fire department came in and inspected his place, 
and said, you can have this many books in this place, and that's it. Really? Well, yeah, and he couldn't, <laughs> and, he said, and you have uh, to the end of the month to clear it out, which was like 14 days. He donated out 20,000 books. Jesus, oh yeah, he my just, God. He just went through and he pulled everything really frantically that he could, that he didn't, that he was dubious about, and he donated them out to the different places. Um, I've, uh, garages are a favorite for book dealers, but you have to be careful about what you're doing because if it gets too bad, yeah, sometimes you will get complaints. I'm not sure that there's a limit to how many you can keep in your house, really, realistically, because it is your private place as long as it does not infringe on the safety of the people around you. So, or on um, the wall space available to your wife to hang pictures. Well, that too. Um, <laughs> when we moved into this current location, one of the agreements that we made was that my books are not in this house. Oh, really? I have like two boxes of books that I keep rotating as I work on them. <laughs> and I have one bookcase for my own stuff that I read, and then most everything else is over at the warehouse. Yeah, well, that's a... A safe and sane agreement. Well, it wasn't necessary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I'm engaged in the same set of negotiations myself. So uh, are there any particular authors that you've discovered or that you would like to talk about in, in terms of, you know, your buying, uh, your buying okay. times? There are a few authors that I look for every time I walk into a bookstore. I will buy them new. Okay, there's not very many of them. And who are they? The one, okay, right now I look, every time I walk in, Sharon Lee and Steve Miller, they write together, they're married, they live in, oh, I don't know, back east someplace. They have been writing since the 80s, and they turn out absolutely marvelously complicated science fiction romances. Really? No, I haven't heard them. Yeah, and they are every other year or so they win some kind of award from the Romance Writers of America for best science fiction romance or something like of some sort of category like that and I happen to think and have for a long time that romance background on a story makes it a better story well sure it's more yeah. human yes it's more human it's more interesting and they write just lovely romances and some really cracking good science fiction at the same time, stories that go on for book after book after book with different people. It's the same story, but they're switching the characters. And so you've got this like 50-year, 100-year continuum where you know what's happening, but you have to read all the books. <laughs> and, um, and I've always, I'll buy theirs new. Um, Nina Kariki Hoffman. Oh, yes, yes. Okay, she, her first book, which is called The, the Threads That Bind the Bones. Right, 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 right. I think I have a copy around here somewhere. Okay, that, for some reason, that book resonated with me so much that I read it five times in the first 30 days I had it. Wow. <laughs> now, I've never done that before or since with any book. But I, that book, there was something about it just resonated. And I've read everything of her since then, and I buy them new every time she comes out with a new book, which isn't often enough. 
but she writes the most gloriously matter-of-fact fantasies that you will ever find. It's like if you ever read Zena Henderson. Right, right, Zena Henderson, The People Boy. I remember those from exactly. when I was a kid. Those she was so, so matter-of-fact about how she treated this, the whole fantasy situation. Nina Kariki Hoffman does the same thing. It's the kind of story that you can read over and over again and just appreciate the humanity of these people. Not the strangeness of the situation, but the the averageness of these people. I love that. I, I love that effect. The and that's uh, you know uh -huh. I was just talking with uh, Jeff and Ann Vandermeer yesterday about the new weird, and I think that's one of the the main components of what this genre called the new weird mm -hmm. is to have fantasy treated as very matter of fact. Yes, like Ray Bradbury did with his early Martian short stories. Right. Right. Or that's the people that just take ordinary stuff and translate it into extraordinary. There's a lot of people that can do that. But to take the ordinary and translate it into, to take the extraordinary and translate it into ordinary, that's a lot harder. Definitely. So um, she's one of my favorites. Let's see. Brand new writer, Linda Freeman. As far as I know, she's only got two paperbacks out, and they were just, for some reason, they just clicked with me very much. And it's about, I think it's probably another planet. It's hard to tell. It could be, you know, 2,000 years in the future, the way it's being written. But she has written a couple of very nice fantasies. Mm. Um, let's see. There's... There's a lot of writers I wish were still writing. Roger Zelazny. Oh, boy. Um, Marion Zimmer Bradley. I grew up with Marion. I lived a few miles away from her, and she was actually one of the, the first author I ever talked to in person. And so I've been paying attention to her books since the early 60s. Wow. Um. Robert Heinlein, yeah. Uh, John Varley. John Varley, and he's still writing and doing he's some still great writing stuff. And he's turning out stuff now that's better than he was writing 20 years ago. Well, I'd have to and say I remember those, uh, those, the trilogy of books, uh, Gaia, is my yes. Yeah. Oh, man, yes. those just blew me away. <laughs> well, he was just, a couple of years ago, he came out with a book called, oh, God, I hope Red Thunder. Right. Yes, yes. Okay, now there's Red Lightning. This is a sequel to it. Mm -hmm. But that book was so cool. <laughs> you know, that was, he took Heinlein's, uh, one of Heinlein's stories, and he turned it, he did it 50 years later, and he did it superbly well. And just a marvelous read. He's, um, he's a marvelous writer and a very nice guy, too, as well. Mm -hmm. he's, he's up here in the Bay Area. Yeah. There's an awful lot of people that I look for on a regular basis. Um, I still read Anne McCaffrey every time I get a chance. Her novels, her collaborations with her son now um, are good. He is turning, Todd McCaffrey has turned out a couple of books that are just every bit as good as anything her mother, his mother ever wrote and set in the same universe and just marvelous additions to 
that whole series about the world of Pern. Uh, they're a delight. I talked to them uh, in Los Angeles, the two of them, when they came mm -hmm. for the 2006 Worldcon, and they yeah. were they were so great together. It was really wonderful to see mm -hmm. these two people who, you know, he'd grown up as a little kid with Pern, and, and, you know, his mother had created this great world that he got to explore now as an adult. It was really fascinating. I know, and I've gone back and read all of the books now at least twice. Some of them, like, I love Dragon Song and Dragon Singer. Mm. They are, I like books that have crafts in them. Mm -hmm. Okay, everybody pretty much does. People that sing, people that build things, people that know their antiques. Um, those are people that I find interesting because it's things that I can't do. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, you know. I couldn't, uh, music is a complete stranger to me. And when I find somebody who writes about it as well as Anne McCaffrey does, or some of the other people that are out there, I just, I really appreciate those books. It doesn't hurt that they are some of the finest science fiction stories for young adults ever written. No, no, no. Now, are you familiar with Adam Stemple? can't say that I am. He is Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough's son, if I'm not mistaken. He's also a fine musician himself. He's a folk musician. Uh-huh. And he writes a series of uh, science fiction novels or fantasy novels that are heavily all about musicians. Ah, okay. So keep an eye out for him. I yeah. think you might like his stuff. And well, as we all know, Chelsea Quinn Yarbrough is, you know, classic uh, science yes. fiction fantasy writer. And well, she's actually the second science fiction writer I ever met. Really? Yeah. And the third was <laughs> Paul Anderson. Wow. So, and all three of them were because I was taking a, a college course on science fiction writing. Uh, where? In uh, the University of California at Hayward. Oh, really? And they all three came into the class and spent a couple of hours there talking. So my first memories of all of those people are very biased towards the image of them as being in their you know, late 20s, early 30s. <laughs> and so, you know, like Paul Anderson is not even here anymore. Mm -hmm. So it's, but they've all been favorites of mine for a long time. And that was one of the reasons, because when authors become real, then they become much more interesting. Tell us what your plans are for the future. Are you, right now, I get an email notice from you. Do you have a website? I have the. I use the ABE website, as and with my own um, definition for the for their subset that they set up for each author. Mm -hmm. Or I'm sorry, each dealer. So it's abebooks.com/home/paulkennedy. Okay. Okay. So anyone can go out and, and check the books. And it is pretty much completely, at this point, science fiction and mystery. Um, I used to try the other categories because I'd see stuff that looked really interesting. Mm -hmm. But there's a limit to how much room you have. <laughs> and as, as we discussed earlier, I've been told that, but I'm thinking yeah. that uh, my house is more TARDIS-like than anything else. Yeah. <laughs> so, that would be interesting. Um, I've always wanted to be... One of these guys that could, you know, you walk into a, a convention and you put this little box down on the floor and you push the button and it starts unfolding. <laughs> yeah. And when it's finished, you're done. You can go sit back and watch all the other poor slobs 
Oh. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a, I, I look at those uh, book setups in the con, in the conventions, and I just think, oh, my God, I can, you know, I would never move. Oh, I, I can remember one where I went, I rented a van because I wanted to go. I had a whole bunch of books to get signed. And uh, like 20 boxes, literally 20 boxes of books to get signed. So I actually found somebody who was going to work for me for the weekend um, at 50 cents a book to get them signed. And I paid him $402. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. It was rather incredible. But I had like 60 boxes of books for that particular one. And it turned out to be a convention center that is completely controlled by the Teamsters and if you did not pay the Teamsters to haul the stuff in, you could only take one book in, one box in at a time. You couldn't use a hand truck or anything. You had to do it by hand. Really? Well, the Teamsters wanted $180 each way, you know. Really? To move you in and to move you out. And, that's, and when you have no idea what's going to happen at a convention, you know, and it's costing you so much already because the average convention, if you're going out and spending a couple of days at the convention, couple of days for travel. Oh, sure. You're, you're looking at $1,500, $2,000. Well, then throwing out another $360 up front, we carried 60 boxes, you know, in from the, the uh, parking garage, down the hallway, down two flights of stairs, because they wouldn't let you use the freight elevator because that was reserved for the Teamsters. Oh, my God. And then over to set up, and it took... It took us about eight hours to set up and about seven and a half hours to pack out that, you know, three, four days later. <laughs> so um, most places are not that, that bad, but that was San Francisco, and mm. San Francisco is that bad. Mm. Well, I'm in Santa Cruz, so yeah. I'm right around the corner. I'll have to keep that in mind if I decide to try something in one of their convention centers because I – Actually, dude, there's a couple of conventions. I, next, uh, 2009, we'll have a World Fantasy Convention in San Jose. Ah, yes, I might even do that because it's close enough it would be worth doing. It's gotten to the point where conventions and stuff, I used to think nothing of driving to Seattle or Denver, mm. uh, which is two days of hard travel, and then you spend two, three, four days at the convention and back. That's a long time. Yeah, that's a hard haul. And so I haven't done any long conventions. In fact, I haven't done hardly anything since the Worldcon 2006. I've just been doing one con one small book fair a year. Mm. And since I now am manager of a store, and I can never tell what's going to happen on a day-to-day -day basis, and I like it a lot. Mm -hmm. So... I tend to stick a lot closer to home, and taking a week off to do something like that is prohibitive. So for the next few years, I'm probably just going to be basically coasting in place, paying my expenses and a little bit more, and not try very hard to buy, you know, 4,000 books a month and, and sell, you know, 2,000. <laughs> which is what most dealers do. <laughs> yeah, no, I can see that's the hazard. That's why I've always never, never... Try to not to succumb to the temptation to selling books because yeah. I, it's just, I, I can tell for me it's a loser's game. Well, I give away anywhere from 10 to 40 boxes of books 
um, every year the books that I look at and I say, okay, I've had this thing for 10 years. It is not going to sell because I can get on the Internet and find copies of it for a dollar. Mm. And so uh, why even bother with it? I give away lots of that. When I moved my warehouse, I gave away about 80 boxes of books. Wow. And I threw away 10 boxes. Wow. Well, that's, that's what happens in, these, in the high-priced, high-competition Internet culture. Yeah. Knocks the prices down. We've been speaking with Paul Kennedy. He's the proprietor of Paul Kennedy Books. You can find him online at abebooks.com slash home slash Paul Kennedy. Thank you for joining me, Paul. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.